So when the theme, uh, Let Us Sing and Wonder, was chosen for our cantata, um, and in the, we're in the middle of, those of you who call TCBC home, you know we're in the middle of an Advent series on the hymns of Christmas. And so I was trying to think of the theme of our cantata, which is on wonder, and um, a hymn, and I, I immediately went to that line from Joy to the World uh, that we are actually going to focus on next week. Is that's, that's the hymn I'll be preaching on, so I'm not preaching on it this week. But um, I went to that line from Joy to the World that speaks of the wonders of his love, that refrain over and over again, the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love. And so what I want to do with us briefly is wonder at the wonders of God's love from this amazing passage from Zephaniah. Um, I'll introduce it like this. I, I, think, <clears throat> I think the recent passing of, of President Bush has uh, landed on all of us in a uniquely, or at least me, but I think a lot of us in a uniquely heavy way because he represented political leadership that both sides in our day are severely lacking. I, I really want to just, this has nothing to do with politics. Put all, all politics aside, all of his politics aside, I just think wherever we're coming from, we could admit that he was a man of character and civility and dignity and graciousness and all these other adjectives that um, are now so, so desperately needed and uh, really the antithesis of what we have become in our raging world. And there are so many stories coming out about him testifying to this. My favorite was uh, one I read this week was his anonymous relationship with uh, an impoverished Filipino child named Timothy. Some of you may have read about this. President Bush was Timothy's sponsor through the organization uh, Compassion International. Many of you uh, sponsor a child, an orphan, through Compassion International. Well, uh, President Bush wanted to sponsor an orphan. Uh, But the problem is that it cannot be known that it was actually Bush uh, who was sponsoring him because Timothy would be put in great risk if somebody found out that uh, he had this relationship with the former president and all those complexities. So Bush, uh, uh, what he did is he sponsored this child and took on um, an alias with him, George Walker, which is, he needs to work on his alias. That's, he could probably, <laughs> George Walker. Hmm. So uh, anyway, so George Walker would write to Timothy. And he would only speak in vague generalizations in his letters, not hinting at who he was. But my favorite part of the story is that as their kind of pen pal relationship grew deeper, you could tell that Bush was just dying to tell Timothy who he was. So he started kind of breaking security protocol a little bit. Uh, the first time it happened, he sent, a, he sent him a picture of, of their dog with a note that said, this is Millie. She's met a lot of famous people. He said, it, my, favorite, my favorite note was this. He once said, he said to him, we're going to be spending Christmas this year uh, with my son at his house. Oh, and he lives in a big white house. <laughs> and so he's dropping all these little hints to Timothy because he wants so badly to tell him who he is. So listen, here is this impoverished orphan who has so captured the affections and love of the president, that the president can't help himself. He wants so badly to reveal himself to Timothy, to tell him who he is, who exactly is this person who loves him so deeply. That, my friends, is what you call sermon illustration low-hanging fruit. If you can't, take it, if you can't turn that into an illustration, you probably don't need to be preaching. 
Because it's exactly what we see in this passage. Exactly what we see in all of the cherished Christmas prophecies of the Old Testament. A God of the universe so in love with impoverished, orphaned sinners who just can't help himself. And so you have in these prophecies, hinting, suggesting, signaling, theologically we'd call it prophesying to who he truly is as if his heart is dying to reveal himself to his people, to reveal just how much he loves them. And the answer of who he truly is, the answer of how much he loves them is Jesus. That's what's happening in our passage. Let's pause briefly and meditate for a moment on the wonders of his love that we see here. And I want to do it in two ways. We're going to look at the wonder, we're going to wonder at the nature of God's love, and then we're going to wonder at the fulfillment of God's love. But let's start at just the nature of God's love that we see here. Look at, we're just going to really focus in on verse 17. That's the most famous verse of this passage. It's beautiful, breathtaking, really. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want you to consider the nature of those three he will statements. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Rejoice with gladness. You know what that is? That's, That's a double portion of joy. This is joy with gladness. Here's here's what it's describing. This is divine giddiness. And it's all over you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He is giddy over you. It says, he will quiet you with his love. That second, he will. It's common to be silenced out of fear. That I, I, I don't want to say anything because I fear repercussions. I fear whatever it may be, so I don't want to say anything here. It is a rare thing to be silenced because of love. I am so loved that I am speechless. And that's what he's promising here. I will silence you with how much I love you. The next one, he will exalt over you with loud singing. You know what that is? You know what he's saying there? This is relationship between God and man reversed. We aren't singing our love and praise to him. He is singing his to us. Look at those words, exalt with loud singing. Doesn't that sound like something we're supposed to be doing toward God? I mean, that's what we're here to do this morning, right? That's what a Christmas cantata service is. We are here to exalt with loud singing. But here it is God having a cantata over us. The point I'm trying to make in all of this is that there is something about this passage that should make us feel almost uncomfortable. It's one thing to say God loves us. If you're a Christian, you know you're supposed to say that. Even if you wouldn't identify yourself as very religious or um, a follower of Jesus, wherever you are, even if just you're a culturally an American, you know some sense of, yeah, I think there's a God who loves everyone. It's one thing to conceptually just say, yeah, God loves us. We can handle that in this distant conceptual way. But this description of God's love feels almost irreverent. But that's what we need. 
Friends, we don't need a theoretical and generic vision of God's love. We need a vision of God's love that makes us squirm. So let's get uncomfortable. Can I just say what you should be thinking when you read the prophet's words here? This verse doesn't sound like words from a God. It sounds like words from a lover. I will rejoice over you with singing. I will quiet you with my love. And as irreverent and uncomfortable as that may make you feel, the Bible actually does invite you to see God this way. Why do you think the Song of Solomon is in your Bible? You know that book that nobody likes to admit there? Do you find it odd that our sacred inspired scripture includes poetry of a lover reveling in the intimacies of love, yes, even sexual intimacy. Evangelicals like to pretend that book isn't there unless it's at a marriage conference where it suddenly comes out of hiding for a few days and then goes back. But it's actually there with the same weight and significance of any book in the Bible. Now listen, at this church we believe every story Every word whispers his name, meaning the name of Jesus. We believe the greater message that the entirety of the Bible is trying to reveal is the greater story of Jesus. And Song of Solomon is in the Bible, which means he isn't just the true and better Abraham, the true and better Moses, the true and better David. He is the true and better Solomon. He is the true and better lover of our souls. The deepest levels of love, affection, and yes, the sacred raptures of sexual intimacy that we see in Song of Solomon are designed to reveal to us God's rapturous love for his people. Let me quote someone respectable here, just so you know I'm not doing the heresy thing this morning. This is St. Augustine, okay? Can we all agree he knows what he's talking about? probably the greatest, most influential theologian in the history of Christendom. This is how he describes his relationship with God. The great St. Augustine. You pierced my heart and I fell in love with you. What do I find in your love? A touch, a voice, a fragrance, an embrace which is for my inmost being. Something that is not limited by space. Something not snatched away from me by the passing of time. Something no wind will blow away from me at sin. Something I may savor undiminished. A union from which nothing can tear me away. This is what I love when I love thee, my God. Is he talking to God or his lover? And that's the point. This is utterly unique to the Christian faith. To invite you. To see the transcendent God this way. Can you conceive of him like this? Will you let yourself go there? Or are you too dignified? Are you too southern proper? Are you too hardened by failed loves from your past? Are you too macho of a man? Are you too independent of a woman? Are you too Presbyterian? It was a nervous chuckle. (laughs) If your theology doesn't have room for God like this, then your theology is not profound enough. 
and this is only proven true, when the prophecy actually comes to pass. If you think this vision of God's love and Zephaniah is uncomfortable, just wait until it comes to fruition. We've seen, we've wondered at the nature of God's love. Let's now close by wondering at the fulfillment of God's love. Now we move to Christmas. Notice something here, not just about verse 17, but really the whole passage. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will gather those of you who mourn. He will deal with your oppressors. He will save the lame and gather the outcasts. He will change their shame. He will, he will, he will, he will. This promise of love is an advent promise, a promise of anticipation. He will do something that will reveal his deep love for his people. He will do something that will be a concrete expression of this type of love we see in Zephaniah. So what has he done? He comes for his beloved. So enraptured by love for his people that he chooses the most inconceivable and dare I say unbecoming act we could ever imagine God doing. God becomes man that he might actually love us the way Zephaniah says he loves us. That the theoretical love of Zephaniah might become actual. If you think It is irreverent to speak of God loving us with the intimacy of a lover. Consider the uncomfortable reality of Christmas. I wrote this week, I I love the song Silent Night. I love it. I'm on record as loving it, okay? We're going to sing it at Christmas Eve service like we do every year. We're going to close by singing it. I love it, okay? But my goodness, does it take the edge off the incarnation. I've done the newborn infant thing four times. I can promise you it was not a silent night. It was not. It was a disruptive night. It was a loud night. Just as Mary was finally dozing off, God woke her up for breast milk. There were not radiant beams from thy holy face. There was that thick, white, pasty Stuff that's on baby's skin when they're born to protect their skin. Am I making you uncomfortable? Well, this is the only the beginning of the revelation of God's scandalous and uncomfortable love. The judge of man submitting himself to the unjust sentence of man, the radiance of God's glory being shamed and mocked and spat upon, the Ultimately, the the author of life succumbing to death on a tree. Theologians call it the humiliation of Christ for a reason. This is humiliating. Why? Why would God succumb to this? He can't help himself. He loves. And this is the only way to have his beloved. Return to verse 17 one more time. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. Now this has echoes of the beginning of the story that we heard read already from Genesis where we are told that God was in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve. But after sin, it says that they hid from God in the midst of the trees. So God is in their midst, but they're hiding from God. God asked them, why are you hiding from me? And they say, we heard the sound of you and we are afraid. As they should be. Because to be in the midst of a holy God 
as sinful humanity is the greatest fear every sinner who falls desperately short of his holiness should have. And yet Zephaniah 3.17 speaks of God being in our midst as our greatest joy, not our greatest fear. How is this so? Jesus. Jesus transforms the meaning of God in your midst from dread to delight. If you look at the promises that we've we've been meditating on in verse 17, they are the antithesis of what Jesus endured on your behalf. Jesus was despised and rejected so that God might rejoice over you with gladness. Jesus screamed in agony so that God might quiet you with his love. Jesus had judgment poured out on him so that God might exalt over you. When Zephaniah promises such extreme love from God, it would demand equally extreme suffering for Jesus. And yet apparently, you are worth it. Why? I had somebody in my office this week with tears in their eyes saying, why did God do this for me? And I said, I don't know. And the moment we start trying to answer the why, God, would you love us like this question is the moment we ruin it. We are here to wonder. We are here to say, I don't get it, but I wonder in amazement that this is true. We don't know why he loves us. So we are left only to wonder at the wonders of his love. And that's your application this morning. That's your application the rest of Advent. That's your application for Christmas. Just wonder at his wonderful love for you. Upon George Bush's death, it was now safe to reveal to little Timothy, who his sponsor and dear friend truly was. And so a friend of Bush, of the Bush family, told him, and it was said that, a direct quote from, from the person who told him, Timothy was so dumbfounded that he was simply speechless. Or to put it another way, Timothy was, one, was left wandering at this wonderful revelation. Speechless. All he could do was wonder. And this friend of the Bush family said this didn't come as a surprise to her. This is her quote. She said, after all, You know to a child in poverty, it's amazing enough that anyone would care about them, but it was beyond his wildest imaginations or even his ability to comprehend that the President of the United States knew his name. And so it is for us. Deep down, we are so impoverished by the fall people. We bear so much guilt, so much shame, so much insecurity and sin that deep down, it's amazing to just think anyone would love us at all. Deep down, it's amazing to think that we are even lovable. It is beyond our wildest imaginations that the God of the universe would love us like this. And so we're just left speechless dumbfounded by his love. We are left only to wonder at the wonders of his love. Let me pray. Lord, we don't know how to explain it. We cannot conceive of it, but we thank you for it. Overwhelm us again with your love for the first time or the millionth time. Overwhelm us with your love 
that we are left speechless, dumbfounded, only to wonder at the wonders of your love. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.